In a nationally watched election, Ohio voters overwhelmingly chose to put the right to abortion care and other reproductive care in their state constitution. It's Wednesday, November 8th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, more election results, including a big night for Boston City Council candidates backed by Mayor Michelle Wu. Also, Ivanka Trump takes the stand today in her family's civil fraud trial. Plus, federal trade regulators challenge the patents on some name brand drugs. We've identified patents that may in fact be resulting in Americans having to pay hundreds if not thousands of dollars more than they should be. And this hour, we talk with the new leader of the AFL-CIO in Massachusetts about a new momentum behind labor unions. We want to improve the lives of working people across the board, whether they're union members or not. And we want to create an economy that works for everybody. Sunny in the 40s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Kristen Wright. Abortion rights were a winning issue in several states in the off-year elections. Voters in Kentucky re-elected their Democratic governor, who had touted his support for abor- abortion rights. In Ohio, voters approved a constitutional amendment protecting reproductive health decisions, as NPR's Sarah McCammon reports. Ohio has become the seventh state since Roe v. Wade was overturned last year, where voters have supported abortion rights in ballot initiatives. Katie Paris is founder of Red Wine and Blue, a group that mobilizes suburban women for progressive causes. It doesn't matter if you are a red state, a blue state, or a purple state. The American people are saying, yes, that we want our reproductive rights back. Ohio has a Republican governor and legislature. The passage of issue one means a state law banning most abortions after about six weeks of pregnancy will remain blocked in court. Sarah McCammon, NPR News. Mississippi voters re-elected their Republican governor, Tate Reeves. Reeves fended off challenger Brandon Presley, a public service commissioner and cousin of Elvis Presley. Reeves thanked the former president for his backing. I want to thank someone that I spoke with just a few minutes ago, President Donald J. Trump. Mississippi has not elected a Democratic governor in more than 20 years. Missouri Congresswoman Cori Bush says her push for a ceasefire in Gaza is gaining momentum. St. Louis Public Radio's Jason Rosenbaum reports the Democratic lawmaker says the idea is popular with the public, even though it's not embraced by her colleagues. Bush is the lead sponsor of a resolution calling for the Biden administration to push for a ceasefire in Gaza. Other Democrats have rejected that idea, contending it would allow time for Hamas to regroup. And Israel's prime minister has categorically rejected the idea. But Bush says the idea is pulling well with the public and has the support of some key world leaders. There is an opportunity to speak about uh, supporting that ceasefire from a position of strength. And this isn't a fringe position. This is a position that the Pope supports. Bush is part of a group of Democratic lawmakers who have been harshly critical of Israel's military campaign in Gaza. For NPR News, I'm Jason Rosenbaum in St. Louis. The House has voted to censure Michigan Democratic Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib over comments she made about the Israel-Hamas war. She's the only Palestinian-American member of Congress. Tlaib posted a video on social media featuring a Palestinian slogan that has been called anti-Semitic. She has defended this as free speech. Members of both parties have now criticized her comments. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. Uh 
I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. This election was a good one in Boston for candidates backed by Mayor Michelle Wu. A number of people she endorsed won seats on the city council yesterday. Former Wu aide Enrique Pepin won the election in District 5, which covers Roslindale, Mattapan, and Hyde Park. Attorney Ben Weber will be the next counselor for District 6, which includes West Roxbury and Jamaica Plain. John Fitzgerald won the District 3 seat in Dorchester. In the at-large council race, newcomer and Wu administration member Henry Santana won a seat. He'll join three other incumbents in the four at-large spots. In some of the mayoral races around the region, Joe Petty won re-election as the mayor of Worcester. In Braintree, business owner Aaron Joyce upset incumbent mayor Charles Kokoris. And in Waltham, Mayor Jeanette McCarthy won another term. She's been in office since 2004. Get a complete rundown of local results at WBUR.org. Maine voters have approved a bill that requires printed versions of the state constitution to include the state's obligation to its tribes. The provision has been in effect for over a century but was never printed. Tribal leaders say the move is an important step in an effort to restore sovereignty. In other news this morning, a new fund is expected to help community groups create temporary shelter space for families in Massachusetts. That's as the Healy administration expects the state shelter system to hit capacity today or tomorrow. The $5 million federally funded program will be administered by the United Way. General Scott Rice is overseeing the shelter system. He says the administration will continue to push for long-term solutions to the shelter problem. As the state puts these new supports in place, we continue to ask the federal government to act to address the federal issues, to include the need for large-scale overflow sites for families. Families without homes will be placed on a wait list after the state hits the self-imposed shelter cap. Vice President Kamala Harris will be in Boston tomorrow. She'll be speaking with members of apprenticeship programs to highlight the White House's efforts to create union jobs. The visit coincides with National Apprenticeship Week. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, integrated with one of the world's leading health care systems and offering innovative plans, a broad network of doctors, and options for individuals, families, and retirees. Mass General Brigham Health Plan is focused on you and those important to you every day. MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. Tonight, the Celtics will visit the Philadelphia 76ers. The New England Revolution play Game 2 of their playoff series against the Philadelphia Union. Philadelphia will be without left-back Kai Wagner. MLS suspended him for three matches for using a racist slur against the Revs' Bobby Wood, Wood is of black and Asian descent. Sunny today and windy. It'll be in the mid-40s. Cloudy overnight with a slight chance for rain or snow showers. No accumulation is expected. It'll be around freezing. Cloudy tomorrow and in the mid-40s. It's 37 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. WBUR supporters include Indiana University, committed to moving the world forward and working to tackle some of society's biggest challenges. Nine campuses, one purpose, creating tomorrow, today. More at iu.edu. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. 
And I'm Michelle Martin. Last night was a good election night for Democrats. The incumbent Democratic governor in Kentucky, Andy Bashir, was reelected. Voters in Ohio chose to enshrine abortion rights in the state constitution. That's an issue that Democrats tend to favor. And in Virginia, Democrats won enough seats to take control of the state legislature and tamp down Republican hopes for more limits on access to abortion. Jessica Taylor is here with us to walk us through the big takeaways from these elections. She's an editor for the Cook Political Report with Amy Walter. Good morning. Good morning, Michelle. Okay, first, Ohio. Voters decided to protect access to abortion. Does this say something about the power of this issue as a voting issue? Because, because you know, it's, it seems that it's been a voting issue for Republicans, but less so for Democrats. And I just I'm wondering if something has shifted here. I think what shifted is that the court overturned Roe v. Wade. And I think for years, Republicans were able to use the fact that they believed that they could use the court to stop abortion, which they did, as a motivating factor. And I think a lot of voters and women voters especially did not think that their rights would be taken away. When that happened last year, it just instantly, I think, became a motivating factor and one that uh, Democrats especially have been able to harness. And so we've seen these votes taking place in even very red places, Kansas, last year. And then now here in Ohio, as well, a backlash to their heartbeat bill and different things and really, really stringent restrictions that they had. So I think it speaks to it as an issue that this isn't just a Republican or a Democratic issue. This is one that that you have Republicans that are clearly voting for it because Ohio is a state that Trump won by eight points twice. Hmm. Okay, so, okay, let's go to Kentucky. The Democratic governor was reelected. And then in Virginia, wins by Democrats in legislative races, you know, so they they held on to the Senate, they flipped the House, and that means that it's going to be a lot tougher for the Republican governor, Glenn Youngkin, to kind of move ahead with his agenda. He's being sort of touted as a possible kind of long shot presidential candidate. That's sort of the, the sort of the buzz. Does do those wins say anything about the Democratic Party's strength overall? Well, I think it just says something and continues to say something about the resonance of abortion because Youngkin really campaigned hard on a 15-week abortion ban. Now, he didn't refer to it as a ban. He sort of referred to it as a limitation and used different language. And this was really a test of whether Republicans could sort of message this this differently. And I think it was clearly rejected in that regard. You mentioned him as, you know, he's sort of been seen as this potential, you know, knight riding in on a white horse to save the Republican primary. I always thought that was a long shot, even if he won. I think those uh, hopes are sort of gone right now. And even in Kentucky, where we had Andy Bashir, the Democrat win, I think that had a lot of different components there. He was a very popular governor, and we just typically don't see governors lose. But he was even able to message this on abortion, uh, sort of go on offense, even in Kentucky, which Trump won by 26 points because of the state's stringent law that didn't even allow exceptions for rape and incest. And he really used that with a viral ad that that had a rape survivor who was raped by her stepfather at 12. And it was just a really brutal ad that both Republicans and Democrats pointed out to me. So you really see, I think, that issue being resonant in both of these states. Okay, briefly, Mississippi no pickup there. The Republican governor easily won a second term. No Democrats been won a governor's race there in sort of 20 years. So not that surprising. But is there anything that you want to point out about that race? 
Well, I think it just shows again that governors are just incredibly hard to beat. In fact, you've in the past, uh, going back to 2018, we've only seen two incumbent governors lose re-election, and both of them had approval ratings that were underwater. And so, I think just the power of incumbency there is just very, very hard to do. You had the Democrat there, Brandon Presley. Um, run on Medicaid expansion, trying to sort of run away from the party in a way, but it's just still Mississippi. And I, again, it's yeah. very hard to mobilize black voters there. I think just the state's dynamics won out in that regard and the power of incumbency. Okay, we don't really have time to talk about this, but Democrats obviously worried about some new polling suggesting President Biden might not be the best person to take on the GOP frontrunner in 2024. Do these election results do anything to make him feel better, make Democrats feel better? Maybe, but I think we're still too far out to these were a lot of state issues, really. All right. That's Jessica Taylor. She's an editor for the Cook Political Report with Amy Walter. Jessica, thank you. Thank you. The U.S. government hopes to make sure the war in Gaza does not spread, but violence has already spread to the West Bank, a Palestinian territory under Israeli occupation. Israeli troops are conducting raids there. At the same time, Palestinians say they are under attack by Israeli settlers. Steve Inskeep looked into one of those cases, and he's with me now. Hey, Steve. Hi there. So what's the story? Well, it begins, Layla, with the land, as so many stories do in the Middle East. Uh, if you look at a map of Israel, uh, you'll see this area that's marked off separately, shaped kind of like a kidney. That's the West Bank, which Israel captured in the 1967 war, and where Israelis have built settlements along Alongside Palestinian villages. This is home to millions of Palestinians. Mm -hmm. The U.S. and United Nations say these settlements violate international law. And when we traveled to the valley where a Palestinian man was killed, we saw an illustration of the problem. Two Palestinian men showed me how two villages overlook the same valley full of olive trees. I want to be sure I understand the geography. Up here on this ridge line, I see a row of houses. Is that Asawiya, the Palestinian yeah, village? Uh, it is Asawi. And then over on this side, this is the settlement on this hillside? Yes, the Asawi. Yes. This settlement here is built on Asawiya land. His family says Bilal Saleh was killed while harvesting some of their own olive trees in the valley between the villages. Uh, we should note this is one of many violent incidents since October 7th, but is unusual in that Israeli authorities made an arrest. They detained an off-duty soldier for the crime. So after looking at the scene, we drove up into the Palestinian village to meet the man's family. They welcomed us onto their concrete porch in the shade. Is this where we should sit? Okay. Bilal Saleh's wife greeted us along with their four small children. How old are you, sweetie? She's eight years old. Oh, I have an eight-year-old daughter, too. Now, Layla, Bilal's brother-in-law knew some English, so he talked and told the story as the widow and children sat listening. Hazem Saleh is the brother-in-law, and he said the olive harvest around there is an annual ritual. It's not only resource for money. It is like a traditional, or we, we say it like a, a festival. Which he's been doing since he was five. We take food, we take kids, we take you know, all the things to be able to, to finish the job in a fun way and in a proper way. 
Now, the residents knew that it would be tense to harvest the olives this year because they were moving toward the Israeli settlement in a time of war, but they went ahead, they went down into the trees, they were on wooden ladders picking olives when Israeli settlers approached. Uh, the Palestinian version of this story is that they decided to retreat, and then Bilal Saleh realized he had left behind his cell phone, and his family last saw him going through the trees to get it. At that time, we heard two bullets, or three bullets. Two or three gunshots. Um, I, what I heard, two. You heard two? Yes. His neighbors found him bleeding on the ground with wounds to the arm and the chest, and they carried him away using a ladder as a stretcher, and he died in the presence of his wife and children. His wife, Ikhlas, spoke through our interpreter. What do you remember thinking when you understood that he was dead? I felt sad, very sad, and suddenly, we say in Arabic this saying, in kasar dahri, my back, was broken. If you need a moment, please take it. I've heard that a man was arrested for the crime. Is that what you've been told? I heard, but I don't believe that he's going to be charged or he will be punished. He will be there for a few days, then he will be released. Why do you think that? The law that they have for themselves is stronger than our existence. Now, there is a Palestinian authority that conducts some law enforcement on the West Bank, but in many cases, Israeli military law applies. And in this case, it was the Israel Defense Forces who took the suspect into custody. And then a few days after we met her, the widow's forecast was borne out because the IDF released the man. Right, which is what she predicted. So why would authorities do that? Well, the IDF didn't comment on why they let the man go or whether this case is truly over. We did reach his defense lawyer, who declined an interview but alleged that Bilal Saleh had some connection to Hamas. And he shared with us video of Saleh's funeral where some people were waving green Hamas flags, although it wasn't clear to us how Saleh posed a threat in that olive field at the time. Now, you mentioned that this is one of many killings in the West Bank. What are the broader implications here? U.S. authorities are concerned by the sheer number of incidents in the West Bank. They've gone up a lot since October 7th. Uh, the other day, a State Department spokesman said extremist attacks on Palestinians were unacceptable. But we should note that Israel has disregarded U.S. concerns about the settlements for a long time. Uh, I've reported from those settlements in the past. Settlers there fundamentally see the land as theirs. Their government refers to the West Bank as Judea and Samaria, ancient biblical names that suggest their claim to the land, even though international law says something else. And it's through the lens of that claim to the land that the Israeli settlers seem to see all incidents, including one like this. Steve, thanks for this reporting. You're welcome. This is NPR News.
Good morning. Thanks for starting your Wednesday with WBMR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, Ivanka Trump is set to testify today in her father and brother's civil fraud trial. She has her own lawyer and has sought to distance herself from the family company. It's 719. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson. Top ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA. I'm Peter O'Dowd. Five years after the campfire devastated the town of Paradise, California, young people are healing by giving back. The fire was definitely a speed bump in my life, but after the fire, it like had lots of changes all for the better. We'll check on their recovery. That's next time on Here and Now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. A heads up for red line riders this morning. The T says there are delays of about 15 minutes right now because of a disabled train at Alewife. Clear skies and breezy today. We'll have highs in the mid-40s, increasing clouds tonight in the mid-30s, a chance of rain and maybe even snow overnight, and showers are likely early tomorrow morning, then cloudy on Thursday with highs back in the mid-40s. It's 37 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI, dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. DataIQ.com. From Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Leila Faldil. A new type of climate-friendly energy is coming online in the American Southwest after years of development and nearly a quarter billion dollars of taxpayer investment. It's a way to harness the Earth's natural underground heat to make electricity. KUER's David Condos reports from Utah. There's a new hotspot in the world of geothermal energy, a seemingly sleepy valley in Beaver County, Utah. Its secret? It sits on bedrock that reaches temperatures up to 465 degrees. So if you think about ovens and turkeys, you can cook a turkey in that well if you wanted a low one down. The well site manager Joseph Moore is talking about sits across a dirt parking lot at the Utah Forge Project. It's the University of Utah's subterranean lab, funded since 2018 with $220 million from the U.S. Department of Energy. This is a conventional or hot spring. The mission here is to test geothermal technology through trial and error, paving the way for other projects that could someday power your home or office without greenhouse gas emissions. This is the best site in the country. 
there are hundreds and hundreds of square miles of area that could be made into a reservoir. But not a reservoir on the surface, one that's underground, in the cracks in that hot rock. Now, geothermal has been around for decades, but it's typically been limited to places that naturally have hot water below the surface. Think geysers and hot springs. So these researchers are here to answer a big question. Can you pipe cool water down one well, through cracks in underground rock where it'll heat up, and then bring it up through a second well to create a geothermal plant almost anywhere? High up on the site's drill rig, a team of workers screw together pipes taller than a two-story house. Giant pieces of metal swing into place suspended from wires. Twist, lock, and then plunge underground. John McLennan is the project's technical lead. So we've drilled to just under 11,000 feet in depth. After six years, his team proved this technique works. It's a closed loop, so the same water keeps cycling through over and over, cooling, heating, and becoming steam that turns turbines. But remember, this is a research lab, so it's more guinea pig than power plant. What we're doing here, we are not producing electricity. We are developing the technology so that the private sector can adopt this methodology. One of the companies doing that is Fervo Energy. This summer, it started generating electricity for the first time at its geothermal pilot in Nevada. And it just broke ground on its next big project right here in southwest Utah. These breakthroughs don't mean geothermal is suddenly as cheap as other types of clean energy. For now, federal analysis shows this type of geothermal costs around $181 per megawatt hour, while utility-scale solar costs just $25. But if future power grids want to get off fossil fuels completely, they'll need to keep the lights on when the sun isn't shining. Ben Serurier of Fervo Energy says geothermal's potential to fill those gaps 24-7 makes it a valuable part of a carbon-free energy diet. What we can do is sprinkle in a little bit of geothermal. You don't need all that much. And you can bring down the overall cost. And he says the more federal incentives help geothermal projects get up and running, the more economical it'll become. Fervo expects the cost of geothermal to drop by about two-thirds in the next decade. But even as this new technology starts proving itself, there are more hurdles before it's powering your light bulbs. Our regulatory structure in this country was created in the 70s when climate wasn't an urgent problem, right? And so now we need a different structure in place. That's Jeremy Harrell with ClearPath, a D.C.-based research and advocacy group focused on clean energy. He says it's often harder to get permits to drill for underground heat than to drill for oil. In a climate crisis, he says that's not going to cut it. Now, geothermal can have some environmental impacts, from habitat loss to an increased risk of earthquakes. But Harrell says its effects pale in comparison to those from fossil fuels. The Department of Energy's long-term goal is to multiply domestic geothermal capacity nearly 25-fold by 2050. But Harrell says if regulators don't speed up the permitting process, the U.S. will have a hard time tapping into geothermal's potential fast enough to curb global warming. For NPR News, I'm David Condos in Beaver County, Utah. 
It's been an historic year for regional Mexican music. Two regional Mexican songs cracked the top 10 of the Billboard's Hot 100 for the first time ever. Music critics are calling it the genre's commercial breakthrough. That's great news for the Houston, Texas-based Easy Band. NPR's Isabella Gomez-Sarmiento has this report. Jaime Guevara grew up in a family of musicians. His dad played in a Norteño band. As a teenager, Guevara started mixing that tradition with the pop songs he heard on the radio. I've been doing this for quite a while. (laughs) It's not my first rodeo. (laughs) But his covers, which include accordion-filled arrangements and half-Spanish, half-English lyrics, didn't take off until he started posting them on TikTok. This year, Easy Band, which includes his dad and brother, released an album of covers, Make It Norteño Volume 1. As international audiences are getting more familiar with regional Mexican, Guevara thinks maybe Easy Band is kind of doing the reverse, introducing rock artists like the Strokes and the Smiths to Latin music fans. I think we are exposing some of that music to new audiences, and it's also, in a way, bringing cultures together. Several of his bandmates, he says, had never heard this song before they played it. But the result, Guevara says, is beautiful. At a recent show... I saw a lot of American people, a lot of white people, and a lot of Mexican people together singing, dancing, so that that brings me a lot of joy. And Guevara enjoys modernizing his family's traditions. Obviously, my dad wouldn't have played anything we are playing at the moment back in the day, you know? <laughs> that was, like, completely out of the question for him. Easy Band is hoping to release a new album next year. Isabella Gomez-Sarmiento, NPR News. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next. Then coming up at 7.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition, we hear from the first woman to lead the Massachusetts AFL-CIO who hopes to build off national momentum to create more union victories in the state. It's 7.29. There's nothing like live radio. With the WBUR app, you can listen live on the road, on a walk, and in the kitchen. Get the free WBUR app today. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square. With cooking and baking workshops, technique and regional cuisine series, and cooking couples classes. CambridgeCulinary.com. And The Huntington, in a co-production with Speakeasy Stage, presents The Band's Visit, the Pulitzer Prize-winning musical about surprise connections, shared humanity, and love of music. Coming to the Boston stage for the first time ever from November 10th through December 10th at the Huntington Theater. Tickets at HuntingtonTheater.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. G7 foreign ministers meeting in Japan say they support Israel's right to self-defense while calling for humanitarian pauses in Gaza to get more aid to civilians. They issued a joint statement today in Tokyo. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is attending the two days of talks where the Israel-Hamas war is a main issue. White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby says the White House is still discussing with Israel and others what the future of Gaza will look like. The president maintains his position that a, a, a reoccupation by Israeli forces is not the right thing to do. We'll let them speak to their intentions, but we are definitely having conversations about what the post-conflict environment ought to look like and what governance in Gaza ought to look like. One thing there's absolutely no daylight on 
is Hamas can't be part of that equation. The incumbent governors of Kentucky and Mississippi each won another term in office on Election Day. In New York City, Youssef Salam won a seat on New York City's council more than two decades after DNA evidence cleared him and four others of the 1989 beating and rape of a woman in Central Park. I never thought I wasn't going to make it. I keep my eyes on the prize. I saw the light at the end of the tunnel. Salam spent seven years in prison wrongly convicted. This is NPR News. This is WB War in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. There will be four new members on the Boston City Council next year. Enrique Pepin, Ben Weber, John Fitzgerald, and Henry Santana all won in their elections yesterday. They'll join all the other incumbents who ran for re-election. In Fitchburg, City Councilor Samantha Squalia beat incumbent Stephen DiNatale to become the city's next mayor. And in Malden, Mayor Gary Christensen was elected to a fourth term. Get more results by visiting WBUR.org. Lawmakers in the Massachusetts House plan to vote today on giving emergency funding to the state shelter system. Governor Healy has asked lawmakers to approve $250 million in funding. State leaders say they want to get the money approved before winter. Families who seek shelter once the self-imposed limit is reached may be placed on a wait list. The state is expected to hit that cap either today or tomorrow. Many of Greater Boston's housing challenges can be traced back to zoning policies over the last century. Those were used to exclude people along racial and class lines. WBUR's Zeninjor Enwameka has more on a new report out today from Boston Indicators. The report finds many communities use zoning policies to explicitly retain wealthy people and restrict lower-income people. This has prevented development of housing that could be accessed by a more diverse population. Researcher Amy Dane wrote the report for Boston Indicators. She says that history is still relevant today. Most of the zoning we have today is from decades ago. It's not like that zoning gets thrown out. It gets uh, tweaked and revised, but the zoning remains. Dane says changing zoning laws to allow more types of homes to be built could help alleviate the region's housing challenges. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zaninjor and Wameka. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help veterans stay warm by giving coats to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com. Tonight, the Celtics will try to bounce back from their first loss of the season. They'll visit the Philadelphia 76ers. The New England Revolution will host Game 2 of their playoff series against the Philadelphia Union. The Revs trail the best-of-three series one game to none. Mid-40s and sunny today with some gusty winds. It grows cloudy tonight and falls to the mid-30s. There is a chance of rain and sleet overnight and into early tomorrow morning, then cloudy and mid-40s on Thursday. It's 37 degrees in Boston. You're with WBY. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Viking and Penguin Random House Audio, publishers of My Name is Barbara, the memoir by Barbara Streisand. My Name is Barbara is available now wherever books and audiobooks are sold. From the law firm Cooley LLP, with offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, Cooley advises entrepreneurs, investors, financial institutions, and established companies around the world where innovation meets the law. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Layla Faldin. 
And I'm Michelle Martin. Ivanka Trump is set to testify today in her father's civil fraud trial in New York. Former President Donald Trump and others, including his sons Eric and Donald Jr., are accused of taking part in a wide-ranging conspiracy to commit business fraud. The stakes are high. The state's attorney general wants them banned from doing business in New York, along with $250 million in penalties. Ivanka Trump's testimony could be key. NPR's Andrea Bernstein has been following the trial throughout and is with us once again for our preview. Andrea, good morning. Good morning. Okay, so help us understand, Ivanka Trump is not a defendant. So why is she testifying? She was a defendant, but her lawyer has successfully argued that because she left the family business for the White House, any alleged actions she was a part of are too old to be a part of a case against her. But her father and brothers continued on with the business. And the way New York law works Their actions, even if old, can be used to establish a continuing conspiracy. To the extent that she was involved with and witnessed those previous actions, her testimony can shed light on the entire scheme. What was her role? Ivanka Trump was involved in the valuations and loans for a couple of key properties. The first was the Doral Golf Course in Florida near Miami. She oversaw the purchasing of that property, for which the Trumps sought financing from Deutsche Bank. Now, by that time, the Trumps had already had a checkered history with the bank's commercial real estate division. So the Trumps went another route. With her husband, Jared Kushner, Ivanka Trump brought in a different division of Deutsche Bank, the private wealth division, and they were willing to loan the Trumps money at a rate so low, even Ivanka was astonished. An email was introduced earlier in the trial saying she was inclined not to negotiate because it was such a good rate. But the rate was based on an inflated statement of value, and that's what at issue in the trial. Did the Trumps get unfairly low rates because they lied? There was testimony from an expert witness that the Trumps saved nearly $170 million in interest from four Deutsche Bank loans by lying on its statements. The Trump defendants could have to pay all that money back to New York State. What exactly Ivanka Trump knew will be key. Wasn't she involved with another property as well? Yes. The old post office in Washington, D.C., which became the Trump International Hotel, perhaps most known as the place where foreign dignitaries and others seeking to impress Donald Trump when he was president would stay. But before that, Ivanka Trump negotiated the lease and yet another bank, Deutsche Bank loan, also at an exceedingly favorable rate. The Trumps were able to sell that property and pay back the loan in full. But that doesn't absolve them under New York business law, which says you're not allowed to run a company based on lies. Is it possible that Ivanka Trump will contradict her father and brothers? So she has in the past. She testified before the House Select Committee investigating January 6th that she accepted former U.S. Attorney General Bill Barr's conclusion The 2020 election was not stolen. This was a big break from her dad, who continues to falsely insist he won the election. She's not so far been involved in the campaign. Well, in the last two, she was a key surrogate. But there's a twist here. She was involved in these business activities. Even if she can't be charged, her role may not look so great. She tried awfully hard to get excused from testifying, claiming she's no longer a New York resident and didn't want to leave her family in Florida during the school week. But the New York courts wouldn't have it. And how much longer are we going to see this trial? She's the last witness for the attorney general's case in chief. Then it's the defense case that'll last until December 15th. That is NPR's Andrea Bernstein. Andrea, thank you. Thank you.
Most drug patents are meant to expire no later than 20 years from the date they were filed. That's to allow generic drug makers into the market after that period, which ideally lowers a drug's cost and expands access. But the pharmaceutical giants have found a way to extend their patents on some common medications used by people with chronic conditions like asthma and severe allergies. In the past, the Federal Trade Commission has warned drug makers to stop. This week, the FTC is acting more forcefully. FTC Chair Lena Khan has issued letters to a number of big pharmaceutical firms threatening legal action, and she joins us now. Good morning. Good morning. So what action are you taking? So today we're challenging more than 100 improper patent listings in what's known as the FDA's Orange Book. So this is a book where firms are able to list patents, and they're only supposed to list patents covering active drug ingredients, so the substance of the drug that helps your body heal. Mm -hmm. And instead, we have found that firms are listing device patents that have absolutely nothing to do with the active ingredient. So patents that are instead covering the dispenser cap on a multi-dose eyedropper or the cap strap on an inhaler, which just keeps the inhalers in place. And so we've identified patents covering these components of devices that we think are improperly listing, and that may in fact be resulting in Americans having to pay hundreds, if not thousands of dollars more than they should be. Let's talk about how this impacts regular people who need these medications. Why are you taking this action? We're taking this action because I think, as we all know, there is a crisis in our country when it comes to healthcare costs. And all too often, people are not able to afford the medicines they need, the life-saving drugs that they need. And so the action that we're taking today would affect a whole set of drug products that people use, including inhalers. You know, over 40 million people in America rely on inhalers. And a lot of the drugs that we see within the inhaler products have been around for many decades. But people are still paying hundreds and hundreds of dollars and generic use is fairly low. It's uh, less than 50%, even though some of these drugs and these drug components have been around for decades. What are the consequences for drug makers that will actually have an impact or make a change? So the drug companies are now officially on notice that we are contesting and challenging the patents that they've listed in the Orange Book. We're claiming these are improperly listed. So now legally, they're required to either justify and show their work and explain why these patents are listed, which again, we believe it's illegitimate. And if they cannot show why these patents are legitimately listed, then they'll have to remove them. They'll be delisted, which will open up the market for competition and make sure that people who rely on inhalers or EpiPens or a whole set of other drug products, that those people are able to access more affordable generics. Now, drug makers will say a move like this stifles their ability to innovate, bring more effective products to the consumer. What do you say to that? Look, we're talking here about inhalers where, you know, the core parts of these products have been around forever for, for decades and decades. And yet the prices are still fairly high. We haven't seen a lot of generics enter the market, uh, we believe, because of improper patent listings. And that's a problem. And so we believe the FTC's action here is actually going to open up the market, spur innovation, and spur more generics into the market, which is ultimately what's best for the public. Lena Khan is chair of the Federal Trade Commission. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much.
This is NPR News. Stay with 90.9 WBUR today for results and perspective on elections across Massachusetts and the nation. Who won and what comes next ahead today on the radio and the WBUR app. Keep listening. Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBUR's Morning Edition, voters in Ohio, Virginia, and Kentucky signaled support for abortion rights in elections yesterday. We'll look at what that may mean for the next elections. Mid-40s and windy today under sunny skies. Clouds move in tonight as it drops to the mid-30s. Rain and sleep possible overnight and early tomorrow morning, then overcast on Thursday back in the mid-40s. It's 37 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance. Auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity. Because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com and the Elliott Hotel, a luxury boutique hotel in Boston with uni restaurant and sashimi bar for holiday parties and weekend getaways. ElliottHotel.com. Owners of Springfield-based Mass Mutual insurance policies will receive their highest dividend ever. The company says it set a record dividend of more than $2 billion for 2024. This is the fourth year in a row Mass Mutual set a record dividend. Burlington-based Avid Technology has officially gone private as part of a $1.4 billion deal. The audio and video editing company had been public for three decades. It's now under the ownership of California-based STG subsidiary. Avid's headquarters and employees remain in Burlington under the deal. Woburn-based Lord Hobo Brewing Company and Boston-based J.P. Licks have a new collaboration that's sure to please the lovers of beer and ice cream. The companies came together to create a new beer inspired by chocolate mint ice cream. Lord Hobo says the brew combines a stout infused with flavors of mint and chocolate. To celebrate, J.P. Licks is also releasing a new chocolate mint ice cream flavor of its own. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. From the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, recognizing exceptionally creative individuals. This year's MacArthur Fellows and more information are at macfound.org. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Massachusetts's largest federation of unions has a new president. Chrissy Lynch takes the helm of the state AFL-CIO during a big moment for labor. She's also the first woman to head the organization, and she joins me now. Good morning. Good morning. So labor movements nationwide have seen some historic victories recently, and a lot of people think we're at a turning point with unions gaining momentum. Is that how you see this moment? Yeah, I I do. We are very much a movement of inclusivity and intersectionality, and the proof is in the pudding, and I think we have momentum. Workers and unions make nearly 20% more in wages than our non-union counterparts. You know, we're more likely to have health benefits. We work in safer workplaces. We have more job security. And we've done some recent polling, and we found that nearly 90% of people under 30 have a favorable view of unions. 
that pulls higher than chocolate and vanilla ice cream. What do you want to do with this momentum? What are your goals? We want to grow the middle class. We want to improve the lives of working people across the board, whether they're union members or not. And we want to create an economy that works for everybody. We all agree that the best way to do that is to organize more people into unions and negotiate those union members' strong contracts, but while also being active politically and legislatively so that we can protect good laws that support good lives for working people, regardless of all the ways that the right wing has tried to divide us, which is by race, by gender, by ethnicity, by immigration status, by who we love. You mentioned right-wing politics. Is that what's on your radar? Is that what you feel like you're reacting to right now? We just got through the Trump years. Other countries, you know, have certainly seen other right-wing leaders who have tried to use divisive language to pit working people against one another. We in the labor movement, we don't take that lightly. Part of building solidarity is rejecting some of those false choices. I mentioned in the introduction that you're the first woman in your position. I mean, what do you think? Is that overblown or is it a big deal? You know, I think it's a big deal. You know, when I graduated from college, there were very few people my age in labor spaces back then. And um, there were even fewer women. I think back to some of the women who were in that space back then. And I, I remember just being floored by how much they looked out for each other. Um, and how much they looked out for me, frankly, to make sure that I felt empowered and that I had a place to go with questions. There are competing campaigns to get questions on the ballot in the next election regarding ride hail and food delivery drivers. One would classify them as independent contractors. The other would give them the right to become unionized workers. What's at stake with those questions? If Uber and Lyft are successful here and putting a whole class of workers you know, because they're on an app, they're okay to be considered independent contractors. It's going to have a ripple effect in not only other sectors of work, but it's going to keep draining our social safety nets. It's going to leave consumers vulnerable. Their game plan is kind of like privatize all the profit, but put all the risks onto everybody else. How that's playing out here in Massachusetts really has the eyes of the entire country. What other big factors are impacting the labor landscape? Two things that are on my mind a lot. COVID brought all of these kind of societal problems to a head. It really exposed sort of the inequities. But right now, we're, we're still in a reckoning with some of the aftermath. Like, for example, you know, remote work. It has helped a lot of people achieve more work-life balance, which is great. But it's also changed local economies with some restaurants not returning, with some office space going vacant. That leads to less hospitality jobs. It leads to fewer new office buildings, you know, which means less construction work. The other big thing is how we tackle the very scary threat of climate change. But how do we also ensure protections and a just transition for the workers who have spent their careers providing gas-based energy? And how do we ensure that equity is at the center of decarbonization and climate resilience so that we're also growing the middle class, diversifying the labor movement? Chrissy Lynch is the president of the Massachusetts AFL-CIO. Thank you very much. Thank you. Coming up at 8.15 here on WBUR, a Medway family trapped in Gaza for a month is now back home, but say they remain haunted by the thought of those they left behind. It's 7.50. 
Five years ago, a deadly wildfire nearly wiped the town of Paradise, California off the map. Most of the town still hasn't been rebuilt. It's a ton of work, but considering it's only been five years and we had a pandemic in the middle of that, what we've accomplished is just a miracle. Why disaster recovery takes so long on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. Voters in Ohio approved adding protections for abortion care to their state constitution. House lawmakers voted to censure Michigan Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, the only Palestinian-American in Congress, over her comments about the Israel-Hamas war. And climate experts say October was the fifth month in a row the Earth recorded its highest ever temperature. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. Clear skies and windy today. Temperatures will rise to the mid-40s. It grows overcast tonight and falls to the mid-30s. There's a slight chance of rain and snow overnight with no accumulation expected. A good chance of more showers and sleet early Thursday morning. Then it'll be cloudy and back to the mid-40s. It's 37 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm Michelle Martin. The record-setting heat we saw this past summer was a preview of the dangerously hot weather expected in years to come. Much of the nation's housing stock is not ready for it. Holly Edgel of the Midwest Newsroom has this report. I'm standing in a very busy construction area here in the city of St. Louis. In front of me is a brand-new townhome development going up. Across from that is an older building, much older, where masons are repairing and replacing some of the original brickwork. The law requires adherence to the 2018 International Building Codes. One of the things that we should be thinking about is how do we move towards performance-based building standards? That's Alice Hill, an expert in the risks of climate change for the Council on Foreign Relations. She says building codes are designed to keep us safe. Across the U.S., builders and developers are guided by international building codes set by the International Code Council, which are updated every three years. The key word is guided, because state and local governments can decide to follow the latest, most stringent codes or not. Hill says the nationwide patchwork of rules prevents us from designing and constructing homes that will protect Americans from extreme heat. They're primarily based on past data and that means that they're out of date. Even the latest codes for 2021 are not what we need, Hill says. They're calling for buildings to be constructed for a climate that no longer exists, much less the climate that we will see in the near future. By mid-century, climatologists predict that extreme heat will suffocate parts of the South and Midwest, bringing feels-like temperatures of up to 125 degrees Fahrenheit for more days of the year. Justin Glisson is Iowa's state climatologist. He says our housing infrastructure is not built for today's extreme heat. And it's definitely not built for where we're going. So it is an infrastructure adaptation aspect that we really have to uh, deal with. Adaptation is not cheap. Old houses built for a different climate can be made airtight, energy efficient, and more climate resilient at a price. 
When it updates building codes every three years, the International Code Council considers new technology and materials aimed at energy efficiency and climate resilience. Depending on where you live, these features can add thousands of dollars to the purchase price of a new home. Hill says that has an impact. So you've got the developer who wants to build cheaply, the family wants to buy cheaply. So that may be that the developer really doesn't want to have the added cost of resilience. Efforts to update U.S. residential building codes happen state by state, city by city, and county by county. The process requires buy-in from developers, designers, builders, and members of the public, just to name a few of the stakeholders. It's a big challenge. Hill says the Inflation Reduction Act offers some programs aimed at energy efficiency, but it's not a climate adaptation plan. Building resilience to climate change requires all levels of government as well as the private sector to work together to understand the risk and then talk about how do we finance the investments in getting ourselves to a position of greater safety. In other words, building from the same blueprint. For NPR News, I'm Holly Edgel of the Midwest Newsroom. The Midwest Newsroom is a collaboration between NPR and member stations in Iowa, Kansas, Missouri, and Nebraska. Over the last six weeks, NPR has been collaborating with researchers at Columbia University Medical Center to see if listeners can add more movement to our screen-filled sedentary lives. It's part of a special interactive series called Body Electric, which investigates the relationship between our bodies and our tech. Manu Samarodi has been our guide, updating us every week on this series. Hey there. Hello, Steve. Okay, we're now getting to the final episode. What did you invite listeners to do? Yeah, so let me remind folks, we all know our sedentary, screen-filled lives are bad for our health. So we wanted to see if we could do something about it based on findings from Columbia University's Exercise Lab. Researchers there have found that five minutes of movement every 30 minutes is the best way to counteract this lifestyle. But we wanted to see if people could actually manage all that movement and all those interruptions in the real world. Mm. And Steve, over 23,000 people signed up to move for five minutes every half hour, every hour or every two hours for two weeks and report back to researchers. What did the researchers find? Okay, so to be clear, these results are not peer-reviewed or published yet. They are preliminary top-line findings, and they are fascinating, Steve. Columbia's lead researcher, Keith Diaz, found that people who took these movement breaks reported having a better mood, feeling more energized, and despite the interruptions, they felt more engaged in their work. Mm. Keith told me there was also a dose-response relationship. So take fatigue levels as an example. So for fatigue levels, folks who moved every half hour improved their fatigue levels by about 30%. The group that moved every hour improved their fatigue levels by about 25%. And the group that moved every two hours improved their fatigue levels by about 20%. So everybody improved, but the group that moved the most had the greatest improvements. What do you hear on an anecdotal level when you reach out to some of these thousands of people who joined the experiment? Oh, I have to tell you about a lovely listener in Dallas named Dana Lopez Mile. So Dana is 43 years old. She works remotely in HR for Hyatt Hotels. 
About a year ago, Steve, she had a stroke, and she found out that she has a genetic disease, Mm. arteriosclerosis, where fat and cholesterol build up in her arteries. So she joined the study, and she started using the treadmill that had been collecting dust in the corner of her home office. And it wasn't easy, but she figured out a way to coach herself to deal with the interruptions. It's very difficult to make that mental switch of, I need to do this. It's going to make me more efficient. And that was the true difference, was the energy that I was feeling when I was taking Mm. these breaks regularly. Dana felt better, but also after we spoke, she texted me with the results of the latest round of blood work she'd done at the end of the project. Her blood pressure was down 40 points from before the project, and her doctor thinks she can get off insulin soon. Wow. I mean, that's fantastic. And it's great to have these overall results, even if they're not peer-reviewed. But what can we do with them now? So the team at Columbia are going to keep combing through the data. Meanwhile, though, we are hoping that we help kickstart a broader conversation about ways to deal with the physical effects of all our screen and sitting time. Thanks for your insights. Manoush Zamarodi, host of the TED Radio Hour and the special series Body Electric. To hear the whole series, go to npr.org slash bodyelectric or find it in the TED Radio Hour podcast feed and listen while you're walking around. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Layla Falden. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Ohio voters have enshrined a right to abortion in their constitution, making their state the seventh to do so since Roe v. Wade was overturned. It's Wednesday, November 8th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, we'll hear from the Medway family who escaped Gaza and returned home this week. It's hard to express my feeling if I'm happy or not because we left a lot of people behind. Also, what's behind the mass deportations in Pakistan, plus a preview of the GOP presidential debate in Miami tonight, and we get reaction from New Hampshire voters as Minnesota Congressman Dean Phillips launches a long-shot primary challenge to President Joe Biden. If, as he says, he wants a Democrat to win the White House, the best thing for Mr. Phillips to do is to pack his bags and go back to Minnesota. Sunny, windy, and 40s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Kristen Wright. In closely watched elections, Democrats seized control of the Virginia state legislature last night. As Virginia Public Media's Jad Khalil reports, they flipped control of the House. Virginia House Minority Leader Don Scott told Democrats in Richmond that their victory was a message to Republicans in Virginia and nationwide. We have been telling y'all since day one. The Democrats had the message, we had the candidates, and we had the momentum to put a stop to the extreme Republicans' agenda. Democrats' campaign message had leaned heavily on protecting abortion rights, 
Virginia is the only state in the South to not impose new abortion restrictions since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. For NPR News, I'm Jad Khalil in Richmond. Ohio voters passed a ballot measure to amend the state's constitution to guarantee the right to abortion. The question was the only measure involving reproductive rights to come directly before voters this election cycle. Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville says he's open to negotiations to end his blockade of military nominees over his objection to a Pentagon abortion policy. Tuberville met with fellow Republican senators behind closed doors yesterday. He emerged from that meeting saying he's committed to his beliefs but open to working with colleagues. I'm standing up for the unborn and uh, you know there, there's going to have to be some give and take here as we go through this. Tuberville is holding up hundreds of military promotions. A government shutdown is looming once again. Congress has nine days to agree to a funding plan to keep federal agencies open. The New York Attorney General's office is expected to rest its case today against Donald Trump and his family business. NPR's Andrea Bernstein reports the former president's daughter Ivanka Trump is scheduled to testify. Ivanka Trump is the third of Trump's adult children to testify. She takes the stand following testimony from her father. Donald Trump combatively conceded a role in certifying false statements of value. The statements are central. A trail of witnesses described how the numbers were falsified to reverse engineer the desired result. Donald Trump and his two older sons, who ran the company after he became president, said they'd relied on their expensive accountants and lawyers. A judge will decide how much what he's described as ill-gotten gains will be paid back to the state. Andrea Bernstein, NPR News, New York. The third Republican presidential primary debate is tonight in Miami. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy, and South Carolina Senator Tim Scott are debating. Front runner, former President Donald Trump, is skipping the debate tonight, and instead he is holding a rally in South Florida. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. Walmart announced it's adding daily sensory-friendly hours to all locations. As Tilda Wilson reports, the supermarket chain is joining a nationwide movement to better accommodate people with sensory processing issues in public spaces. Bright lights and loud music can make grocery stores particularly overwhelming for people with disabilities that impact sensory processing, like autism, ADHD, or PTSD. Now the world's largest supermarket chain has announced a plan to make things a little easier for those same people. Every day from 8 to 10 a.m. local time starting November 10th, Walmart stores will dim the lights, turn off the music, and change any digital displays to a static screen. Walmart is joining other national chains with sensory-friendly hours and programming, like AMC Theaters and Chuck E. Cheese, as well as museums and cultural institutions like the Smithsonian. For NPR News, I'm Tilda Wilson. The Department of Justice has secured an agreement with Alameda County, California, to improve mental health services. The federal government says the county, which includes the cities of Berkeley and Oakland, violated the Americans with Disabilities Act by failing to provide services to people with mental health disabilities in the most integrated setting possible, instead placing many in institutions. The settlement requires the county to take several steps, including intensive housing and employment services. Today is National STEM or STEAM Day. It is celebrated every year to encourage young people to explore their interests in science, technology, engineering, arts, and math. I'm Kristen Wright, NPR News in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. 
Count Bossomir Michelle Wu as one of the big winners in yesterday's election. She wasn't on the ballot, but several of her chosen candidates won their races for city council. WBUR Simone Rios reports. Henry Santana served in Mayor Wu's administration and won her endorsement for an at-large council seat. He claimed victory late last night with Wu by his side. The top three at-large spots went to incumbents Aaron Murphy, Ruth Z. Louis-Jouen, and Councilor Julia Mejia. In the district races, Wu-backed candidates celebrated wins in District 5, where the mayor's former aide Enrique Pepin defeated a police union-backed candidate, as well as in District 6, where labor attorney Ben Weber also beat an opponent endorsed by police. The race to fill Dorchester Councilor Frank Baker's district seat was won by John Fitzgerald, who had Baker's support. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. The results for some of the mayoral races in the region are in. In Worcester, Mayor Joe Petty was re-elected for a seventh term. In Woburn, City Council President Mike Concanon beat Mayor Scott Galvin. And in Haverhill, Melinda Barrett will become the first woman to serve as mayor. Get a complete rundown of local results at WBUR.org. Election Day brought a rare pickup for Republicans in the state Senate. State Representative Peter Durant will fill the seat which covers parts of Worcester, Gardner, Spencer, and other communities. The seat was vacated earlier this year by Democrat Ann Gobi. She stepped down months ago to become the state director of rural affairs. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley is criticizing her Republican colleagues for advancing a bill that strips funding for an LGBTQ plus housing project in the state. The appropriations bill cuts $825,000 for the Pride Housing Complex in Hyde Park. The development would be the first in Boston specifically catering to older LGBTQ plus adults. Presley says she's working to find other federal funding for the project. It's 808. WBUR supporters include Luminescence Foundation, dedicated to shedding light on neurological research focused on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's diseases and supporting land conservation initiatives. Tonight, the Celtics will visit the Philadelphia 76ers. The New England Revolution will be at home for a playoff match against the Philadelphia Union. Sunny today and windy. It'll be in the mid-40s. Cloudy overnight with a slight chance for rain or snow showers. No accumulation is expected. It'll be around freezing. Cloudy tomorrow and in the mid-40s. It's 37 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. Last night was a good night for supporters of abortion rights. Yeah, in a handful of states holding elections, abortion access appeared to be a winning issue, more than a year after the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. NPR Sarah McCammon is with us now for a look at the results. Good morning, Sarah. Hey, good morning, Michelle. So let's start with the big one, Ohio. And then we're calling it the big one because there was a ballot initiative that people on all sides of the issue have been keeping an eye on. What happened? Well, Ohioans voted to put protections for reproductive rights, including abortion, in their state constitution after a long fight that lasted many months. And Ohio is now the seventh state since the Dobbs v. Jackson women's health decision last year from the Supreme Court that's voted to support abortion rights in one way or another through a ballot initiative. So we've seen this in state after state. And it shows that voters, even in red states, can use the ballot box to push back against abortion restrictions they think have gone too far. I talked to Kelly Hall with the Fair Project last night. That's a group that advocates for the use of ballot measures to advance progressive policies. 
Ohio is the first state that I really think we could put in that red column that has said we can go on offense and we can win. And that is an inspiring example that shines a light on the path for other red states. So again, what we saw there was a red state with a Republican governor and Republican legislature passing abortion protections. And this means a state law banning most abortions after six weeks in Ohio won't be able to take effect. So let's go to Virginia now. It's often seen as a bellwether state or as a purple state. Talk about the issue there. What was at stake and what happened? Yeah, abortion wasn't directly on the ballot in Virginia the way that it was in Ohio, but the issue was really central to the campaign. The entire legislature was up for re-election in Virginia's off-year election. Democrats held on to control of the state Senate, and they flipped the state House, which had been controlled by Republicans. Now, that was important, Michelle, for abortion rights supporters because the Republican governor, Glenn Youngkin, has supported a proposal to ban most abortions after 15 weeks. As it is right now, Virginia is the only state in the South that has not restricted abortion since the overturning of Roe v. Wade, and it looks likely to stay that way, at least for now. So what other races have you been watching? You know, another important one was Kentucky's governor's race, another red state, but with a Democratic governor, the Democratic incumbent, Andy Bashir won re-election after facing a challenge from the state's Republican attorney general, Daniel Cameron. Cameron had defended Kentucky's near-total abortion ban. And Bashir's campaign released an emotional ad in which a young woman talked about her experience uh, being a victim of rape by a family member and pointed out that Kentucky's abortion law doesn't contain rape or incest exceptions. So again, we have a red state here. As we mentioned last year, voters rejected an effort to amend Kentucky's constitution in a way that would have been unfavorable to abortion rights. And those voters this year have reelected their Democratic governor. So, so Sarah, before we let you go, what other takeaways do you see from these results? Anything that might offer clues about what to expect next year? Well, all indications are that voters are still being motivated by the abortion rights issue. That's a good sign for Democrats. The Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee released a statement celebrating the victory in Ohio and looking ahead to next year, warning that many Republicans still want to pass a national abortion ban if they can. And so expect more of this next year. Also expect more ballot initiatives in states like Arizona and Florida, potentially. That is NPR Sarah McCammon. Sarah, thank you. Thank you. In the decade since China launched its Belt and Road Initiative, it's made about $1 trillion in loans to build infrastructure throughout the developing world. The BRI has helped Beijing build influence, but there have also been a lot of bad investments. So China is revamping its approach. NPR's Emily Fang reports. From debt-trap diplomacy to allegations of pollution, China's BRI has never been short of controversy. The lending from China stood at 1% in 2001. But Beijing's decade-long global infrastructure push was initially not as successful as some thought it would be, says Brad Parks, executive director of the Aid Data Research Project at William & Mary, a university in Virginia. So if you're sitting in Beijing right now, and you're looking at a global dashboard of your overseas project portfolio, what would you see? You would see a lot of flashing red lights. In fact, Park says many of the early projects China invested in have flopped. If you fast forward to today, they have nearly 1,700 problem projects worth more than $450 billion with a B. And so, behind closed doors, China's President Xi Jinping and his officials are quietly reworking the BRI, he says. This includes using more experienced Western banks to finance projects. It's tightened auditing, eliminating environmental, social, and governance risks in its new projects without sacrificing speed. 
Beijing is figuring out how to give leaders in the developing world exactly what they want, which is rapid delivery of big ticket infrastructure projects without unreasonably high levels of risk. Another reason why China is under pressure to improve its BRI is its economy is struggling, and Chinese political pressure means tighter regulation that's reined in BRI funding. Here's Yunnan Chen, a researcher who studies Chinese investment at ODI, a London-based think tank. Regulatory pressure ramps up massively after 2016. There's、um, audits launched into like, multiple policy banks and commercial banks, so there's a lot going on at home. All this presents an opportunity to China's geopolitical rivals, such as the U.S. Washington, for example, is now leading the funding of a new railroad in Africa. But Chen says, given the mistakes China has made over the years there in Africa, the U.S. should also study where China went wrong in order to compete. Emily Fang and Pierre News. Wafa Abuzaida and Abud Okal were visiting their families in Gaza last month with their one-year-old Yusuf when war broke out. For 27 days, this American family was trapped in the Palestinian enclave as Israel rapidly expanded its military campaign. As bombs drew nearer, as food and water grew scarce, and as the death toll soared, Wafa prayed for one thing. Every day, I used to ask God. If you want to take us, take three of us, not one of us, not two of us, three of us. Every day, I used to pray for that. The daylight was spent in breadlines, in search for water. The nights, in fear of what would come from the sky, as they waited, waited for news from the American embassy on how to get out. And finally, last week, they crossed into Egypt and started their journey home to Massachusetts, where they spoke with me over a Zoom call. What does it feel like, guys, to be home? To be honest, it's hard to express my feeling if I'm happy or not, because we left a lot of people behind. My parents, they are still in Gaza. His parents, siblings. We have neighbors, friends. The hardest moment when we had to say goodbye to our families, because we know I don't know if I'm gonna see my family again or not. <laughs> It's it's hard when my dad called me. He started to tell me things if we couldn't see each other again. Yeah, there's definitely、uh, survival guilt. My parents, her parents, <clears throat> my siblings. I think when Wafa and I got to Cairo, we both had the same feeling. We took showers back to back, and we both cried in the shower. More than ten thousand people have been killed in the enclave in the span of a month, according to the health ministry in Gaza. And Wafa and Abud don't know how many are from their own extended families. I have not told Wafa yet, but、uh, we have a third cousin that she has lost three kids. Word only got out because m- many people are still under the rubble and considered missing until there's a confirmation that they're gone. As soon as Hopefully, this comes to a stop. I think that's really when the magnitude of personal loss will unfold. They fled south in the first days of Israel's punishing response to the Hamas attack, which killed at least fourteen hundred people, according to the Israeli government. Our biggest fear is to try to get out of Gaza before a ground invasion happens, because a complete different level of risk and danger comes with a ground invasion, where soldiers are on their toes. 
everything that moves becomes a target. And that's why we left as soon as the IDF announced that, hey, North Gaza Strip is not safe. Was it hard to get to the south? Oh, my God. All the 27 days was like really bad. But that day was the worst for me. I saw the people in the street walking with their clothes, with their mats. It reminded me about what happened to 19... Um, 48. 48. 1948, known among Palestinians as the Nakba, or catastrophe, when hundreds of thousands of their people were violently forced from their homes as Israel was established. I can't forget what I saw that day. It, it was extremely chaotic. There was no mentioning of whether this is going to be a safe passage or not. I think part of it, too, was that no one knew how the local authorities in Gaza would react to this. There was a sentiment against people being displaced. We were not sure if roads would be forced shut down. That was the worst day of the 27 days. Yeah, getting a ride from north to south and see how is Gaza destroyed. All the lovely places we used to go, no more. It was hard during the ride, looking left and right and seeing everything got destroyed. Do you think you'll ever go back to Gaza? I feel right now, I don't want to leave the house. I feel like I, I, I want to stay here. I feel safe here. What's probably the most saddening for us is that we know for a fact it is no longer the Gaza that we knew. The places that we grew up going to are no longer existent. Maybe hopefully new construction and rebuilding of Gaza happens, but it would be a different Gaza. And I think... The scars that are left with people, not just the physical ones, but the mental ones and the emotional ones, are going to be hard to heal. Wafa, Aboud, and their one-year-old Yusuf, an American family trapped in Gaza, are finally home. This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your Wednesday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, what to expect as five Republican presidential candidates take the stage in Miami tonight for the third debate of the 2024 primary. It's 820. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. And Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. I'm Peter O'Dowd. Five years after the campfire devastated the town of Paradise, California, young people are healing by giving back. The fire was definitely a speed bump in my life, but after the fire, it like had lots of changes, all for the better. We'll check on their recovery. That's next time on Here and Now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Clear skies and breezy today. We'll have highs in the mid-40s. Increasing clouds tonight in the mid-30s. A chance of rain and maybe snow overnight. And showers are likely early tomorrow morning. Then cloudy on Thursday with highs back in the mid-40s. It's 38 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Viking, dedicated to bringing travelers to the heart of each destination by river and ocean, offering programs designed for cultural enrichment and immersive experiences on board and on shore. Viking.com. From BetterHelp, 
Committed to supporting mental health through therapy, clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. From Charles Schwab, offering investors choices like full-service wealth management, advice, investing, and trading on Think or Swim. Learn more at schwab.com. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Leila Faldil. In Southern California, authorities are investigating the death of a Jewish man involved in an altercation at a pro-Israel rally over the weekend. NPR religion correspondent Jason DeRose reports they've not ruled out a possible hate crime. 69-year-old Paul Kessler attended a pro-Israel rally in Ventura County, just north of Los Angeles, on Sunday afternoon. The protest took place at the same intersection as a pro-Palestinian rally. An altercation broke out between Kessler and another person authorities are declining to name, but whom they say was there supporting Palestinians. Kessler fell and hit his head. The following day, he died from what Ventura County Medical Examiner Dr. Christopher Young determined to be blunt force head trauma. Internal injuries also were consistent with a fall, which included um, skull fractures, uh, swelling of the brain, and bruising to the brain. Young says the manner of death is homicide, which he describes as a medical term, meaning just that it involved another person. Ventura County Sheriff James Fryhoff says the investigation is ongoing. I can just tell you that the information we're getting is conflicting with one another. There is clearly an interaction between the two, but what that level of interaction is is still unclear. Fryhoff is asking for the community's help, especially from those who may have video of the altercation. The Jewish Federation of Greater Los Angeles issued a statement saying it will not tolerate violence against the Jewish community. The Greater LA Office of the Council on American-Islamic Relations says it stands with the Jewish community in rejecting any and all violence. The Sheriff's Office says of the 21 rallies that have taken place in Ventura County since the October 7th Hamas attack on Israel, this was the first to include violent interactions. Jason DeRose, NPR News. Thirteen guards from a North Texas prison were fired or resigned after a brutal beating in September left an inmate in a coma, likely for the rest of his life. We're going to tell you about that beating in the story, so be advised. Some inmates and former staffers say an acute shortage of guards is leading to more violence in some Texas prisons, and they warn it may only get worse. From Texas Public Radio, Paul Flav has this report. Tim Nixon knew something bad was about to happen. It was 9.15 at night, and he had just been rousted from his cell by three guards whose names he didn't know and whose name tags he says were obscured by full tactical riot gear. Nixon says they placed him in a holding cell about 50 feet down the run directly across from another cell, cell number one. Then the guards joined a half dozen others lined up outside cell one. Call it intuition, call it, you know, whatever you want to call it. But you can tell that somebody's fixing to get their ass whooped. The Alternative Living Unit, or ALU, where Nixon currently lives at Cofield Prison Unit, holds 12 men in solitary confinement who have a high risk of escape or who have assaulted guards in the past. People like the occupant of cell one, Kaiheem Grant. I'm literally 20 feet away in this holding cell, and I can see Grant in his cell. What Nixon had missed was that Grant had assaulted a prison guard. 
According to other inmates, a long-simmering feud between a new sergeant and Grant had boiled over. And prisoners say Grant shot the guard in the neck with a makeshift spear gun. The projectile pierced Sergeant Gabriel Quay's neck, so an hour later, guards handcuffed Grant behind his back through a cell door with two pairs of cuffs, a protective box over that, and a chain with a padlock. And then Nixon says he saw the most brutal beating he's seen in his 33 years in Texas prisons. They open the door and run in and proceed to beat the crap out of this guy. Then he says a guard removed his helmet and raised it high nearly to the ceiling. Almost nine feet up and bringing it down on Offender Grant's head multiple times. The man is completely irresponsive at this point. Grant is currently in a coma at a prison hospital that his family says he likely won't wake from. Seven guards were terminated, six resigned, and a criminal investigation continues. Inmate Christian McMillan says the violence has only gotten worse. What about the culture that promotes this type of incident, this type of action towards inmates? McMillan says three of the guards who have now been fired were known for joking about beating inmates. In conversation, like it's cool, like, you know, this is what we do, you know, this is... This is the thing. We just conversate and laugh about it. The state prison system continues to block TPR's access to disciplinary records of the guards involved. Inmates, including McMillan, say the state's extreme understaffing set the stage for this and other violent incidents. Cofield Prison is short of about 430 guards, meaning more than 60% of guard positions are unfilled. That is insane. Lance Lowry is a past president for the union representing Texas prison guards. My mind can't even understand why it'd get to that level. That is incredibly dangerous, not only for the inmates, the officers, but the community. For inmates, Lowry says, the guard shortage means less access to showers and recreation time and food showing up hours late. For guards, it means more forced overtime and less time with family. I mean, you mix that combination, it's an explosive formula. You're going to see more use of force. A department spokeswoman says what happened to Grant was not related to staffing or training. She says the system has increased training as well as pay. Since April 2022, they've reduced the number of vacancies by 1,100. But statewide, they haven't filled nearly 30 percent of positions. South Houston State Representative Gene Wu says the Texas Senate failed to pass money approved by his chamber last session that would have helped close that gap further by providing more money for pay and air conditioning in Texas's notoriously overheated prisons. The number of people who are willing to work in a brutal environment where there is just unbelievable heat every single day, where you're understaffed, overworked, and underpaid, who wants to do that? But Wu says it's unlikely the state will take action, and he hopes the federal government intervenes. For NPR News, I'm Paul Flav in Tennessee Colony, Texas. After clinching deals with the big three U.S. automakers, the UAW is setting out to organize non-union factories in the South. That story later today on All Things Considered. To listen, tell your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition. WBUR's Anthony Brooks speaks to New Hampshire voters about Minnesota Congressman Dean Phillips's long-shot primary challenge to President Joe Biden. It's 829. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Democratic lawmakers will control Virginia's House and Senate beginning in January. NPR's Sarah McCammon reports on what the Election Day results will mean for Richmond. The entire legislature was up for re-election in Virginia's off-year election. Democrats held on to control of the state Senate, and they flipped the state House, which had been controlled by Republicans. Now, that was important for abortion rights supporters because the Republican governor, Glenn Youngkin, has supported a proposal to ban most abortions after 15 weeks. As it is right now, Virginia is the only state in the South that has not restricted abortions since the overturning of Roe v. Wade, and it looks likely to stay that way, at least for now. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says G7 foreign ministers meeting in Japan are united in their support of Israel's right to defend itself against Hamas. Blinken also says the ministers would like to see humanitarian pauses to allow more aid to reach civilians in Gaza. As for a ceasefire... Those calling for an immediate ceasefire have an obligation to explain how to address the unacceptable result it would likely bring about. Hamas left in place with the capacity and stated intent to repeat October 7th again and again and again. Thousands of Palestinians continue to leave northern Gaza on foot amid dwindling supplies of food and water. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Several candidates backed by Boston Mayor Michelle Wu won their bids to join the city council. Ben Weber, Enrique Pepin, and Henry Santana all won their elections. In Dorchester, John Fitzgerald won the seat now held by Councillor Frank Baker. In mayoral races around the state, it was a good night for many incumbents. Somerville Mayor Katiana Ballantyne won re-election. So did Quincy Mayor Thomas Koch. And in Brockton, Mayor Robert Sullivan won a third term. Get a closer look at the results by visiting WBUR.org. Lawmakers in the Massachusetts House plan to vote today on a $250 million bill that would fund the state emergency shelter system. State leaders say the money would support the shelter system through the spring. The state is expected to hit its self-imposed emergency shelter cap today or tomorrow. Families who seek shelter once the cap is reached may be placed on a wait list. The Massachusetts chapter of the largest federation of labor unions has a new leader. WBUR's Lainey Ruxtell has more on what that could mean for the future of unions in the state. Chrissy Lynch is the first woman to lead the Massachusetts AFL-CIO. She says she's excited to take the helm at what she sees as a big moment for labor. Workers are really feeling empowered to take action coming out of the pandemic, which really spotlighted how rigged our economy is to favor the rich and powerful. I think workers are fed up. Lynch says she hopes unions can use this momentum to increase their membership, grow the middle class, and negotiate strong contracts. She's also keeping an eye on new technology like AI and legislation that impacts working people. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Lainey Ruxtell. It's 8.33. WBUR supporters include Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, Medicare plans for every lifestyle and budget. Visit bluecrossma.com go. The Celtics will be in Philadelphia tonight to take on the Sixers. The Seas have five wins and just one loss so far this season.
The New England Revolution will try to keep their playoff hopes alive tonight. They'll host Game 2 of a playoff series against the Philadelphia Union. The Revs trail the best of three series, one game to none. Mid-40s and sunny today with some gusty winds. It grows cloudy tonight and falls to the mid-30s. There's a chance of rain and sleet overnight and into early tomorrow morning, then cloudy in mid-40s on Thursday. It's 38 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Focus Features, presenting The Holdovers. Paul Giamatti reunites with director Alexander Payne for the first time since Sideways, now playing in select theaters everywhere this Friday. From the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. 2024 Republican presidential hopefuls will face off in a third debate tonight in Miami. Now, it'll be the smallest slate of candidates to take the stage yet. The Republican National Committee says only a handful of candidates qualified. Here to tell us more about what to expect from tonight's debate is NPR's Ashley Lopez in Miami. Good morning, Ashley. Good morning. First, let's talk about who did qualify to participate in tonight's debate. Who are we going to see? Sure. So only five candidates have qualified this time around, thanks to stricter qualifying rules from the Republican National Committee. So former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, businessman Vivek Ramaswamy, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott and former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie will be on stage tonight. North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum, who was in the first two debates, did not qualify this time around. And former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, who appeared in the first debate, hasn't qualified for these last two. And of course, we won't be seeing former Vice President Mike Pence on stage tonight because he recently dropped out of the 2024 presidential race. And the front runner, former President Donald Trump, I hear he's got a place nearby, so getting there shouldn't be a problem. <laughs> but I take it he's not going to make it. No, no, he's not. Donald Trump has not qualified for any of the Republican debates so far. Even though, yeah, he's polling in the lead and has huge fundraising numbers, he has not met all the qualifying standards, specifically one that requires each candidate to pledge that they will support whoever wins the nomination. Trump has flat out refused to sign that pledge. He has also said that he doesn't want to elevate his opponents by being on stage with them. But just like the last few debates, he's planning some sort of counter-programming, if you will. He's holding a rally relatively close by in Hialeah. Hialeah is a predominantly Cuban-American part of town, which is a subset of voters Trump has done really well with. In 2020, Trump outperformed expectations specifically among Latino voters in South Florida. So this is an important base of supporters that he is expected to bring out tonight. And as you mentioned, it's close by for him. So of the people who are on the stage, who are going to be on the stage, Nikki Haley, former South Carolina governor, former U.N. ambassador, actually, you know, appointed by Trump. She's been getting a lot of buzz in the media. First of all, why is that and how big of a deal is this debate for her? Well, Haley's definitely the candidate to watch tonight, right? She's been steadily gaining support in the polls. Importantly, she's been doing really well in matchups with President Biden in swing states. And, you know, what's done it is a lot of her momentum started with strong debate performance. Often you will see in crowded primaries that candidates will get a lot of momentum with something like a good debate performance and then just sort of flame out. But Haley has been an anomaly in that she's been consistently gaining ground in this race. Right now, I think she is perhaps the lead alternative to Trump among the slate of candidates that are left. And there were high expectations that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis would probably fill that role. But his campaign has had a lot of pitfalls and he's had some pretty lackluster performances in the last few debates. 
For that reason, I actually fully expect that Haley will set her sights on Ron DeSantis. In fact, her campaign has already released an ad taking aim at him. So what do we expect the candidates to talk about tonight? What do you think is going to be the focus? Well, you know, this is the first debate since Israel was attacked, right? And I'm sure what is happening in the Middle East, as well as how President Biden is handling the crisis, will come up. While there are factors of the Democratic Party that have been split on how to deal with Israel as it continues to bomb Gaza and the humanitarian crisis there, Republicans have been pretty uniform in their response. And this is one of those issues where there isn't a lot of infighting in the Republican Party, which gives them an opportunity to set a contrast between themselves and the Democrats and not necessarily a contrast between each other. That is NPR's Ashley Lopez. Ashley, thank you. Yeah, thank you. There's a crackdown underway in Pakistan. Authorities there are going door to door looking for foreigners, mostly Afghans who are living there illegally, to deport them. NPR's Arzu Rizvani reports on what's behind this mass expulsion. For the last several days, truckloads of Afghans have been pouring in across the border from Pakistan. Thousands of Afghans are dropped off at camps, where they unload a few modest belongings inside tents set up by the Taliban government. Their lives turned upside down when Pakistan suddenly announced last month that all illegal migrants had to leave the country by November 1st. In Pakistan, most undocumented people are Afghan. And so far, less than 10 percent of that 1.7 million undocumented population have returned, according to the Taliban government. Some are still making their way back, but others, like 27-year-old Sahar, are desperately trying to stay. I'm an Afghan. I proudly say this. But I cannot go there because if we go back to Afghanistan, we cannot study, we cannot work. So what should we do in Afghanistan? Sahar, who gives only her first name since she's already on the radar of Pakistani police, fled Afghanistan a year ago. She left with her mother, three younger sisters, and kid brother as life grew harder for women and girls, who are barred from continuing their education and working most jobs. Under a short-term visa that recently expired, her family settled into a new life in Islamabad. But a recent visit by the police has her worried that their time in Pakistan may soon be up. It was about uh, 7.30 or 8 p.m. They knocked our door by force. They were about uh, 15 to 20 people. And uh, when we showed our visa, they said that, uh, no, your visa is expired. You need to go back to your own country. Pakistani authorities say these expulsions are about strengthening the country's national security. But Aisha Sadiqa, a senior fellow at King's College London, says the timing of this policy is meant to send a message. It's a signaling to the Afghan leadership. If you're not going to help me solve the TGP, the Harike Taliban Pakistan problem, then I'm sorry, I'm not going to take responsibility for all these Afghan citizens who are refugees here. The TTP is a Pakistani offshoot of the Taliban. The group has stepped up its attacks, mostly on Pakistan's border areas, since the Taliban returned to power in 2021. So this mass expulsion is Islamabad's way of putting pressure on the Taliban to rein in the TTP, experts say. Now, the Taliban insists the group's activities are unrelated to the Afghan government. But Michael Kugelman of the Wilson Center in Washington says history suggests otherwise. There's been a constant pattern throughout the history of the Taliban in Afghanistan where they just simply do not turn on their allies. And that is why Kugelman cautions that Pakistan's pressure campaign could very well backfire. 
the Taliban is indeed a group that does not respond well to pressure, and it could feel compelled to become even more resistant and perhaps even be willing to try to empower the TTP even more, encourage them to try to carry out more attacks in, uh, in Pakistan. All of this leaves ordinary Afghans like Sahar tangled up in escalating tensions between the two countries, and they're worried about what the fallout could mean for their lives. Sometimes some of our relatives, when they call us from Afghanistan, they say that, please, in any situation, please don't think to come back to Afghanistan because uh, this is not a place for anyone to live here. But for those families who have females like us, they cannot survive in Afghanistan. The Taliban forced Sahar to leave her home in Afghanistan. Its offshoot in Pakistan may be the reason she soon sent back. Arzu Razvani, NPR News. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at recent bipartisan support in Congress for legislation that would boost retirement security and how legislators are hoping to build on that momentum. Mid-40s and windy today under sunny skies. Clouds move in tonight as it drops into the mid-30s. Rain and sleep possible overnight and early tomorrow morning. Then overcast on Thursday back to the mid-40s. It's 38 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex. Working for people with sickle cell and genetic kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Careers in research and cell and genetic therapies at vrtx.com. Cambridge-based Car Gurus is fully acquiring the online car trading company Car Offer. Car Gurus bought a majority stake in Car Offer back in 2021. It says it reached an agreement to purchase the remaining stake for $75 million. The deal is expected to close by the end of the year. Needham-based TripAdvisor says its revenue is up 16 percent compared to last year. The company says its biggest growth was within its Viator segment. The online tour booking arm grew its revenue by 41 percent. It's 843. WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages. Starts November 24th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. Member FDIC. This is WB Wars Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The decision by Minnesota Congressman Dean Phillips to challenge President Joe Biden for the Democratic presidential nomination is dividing their party. Phillips just launched his bid in New Hampshire. His campaign against Biden is a long shot, but as WB Wars Anthony Brooks reports, it's the latest evidence of growing concern among some Democrats that the president's reelection effort is in trouble. Welcome to my very first town hall in the Granite State, only 119 to go. Dean Phillips met voters in Manchester just a few days after he launched his bid for the Democratic presidential nomination. He got to the point quickly. The country is deeply divided and Donald Trump could become president again. Because the truth of the matter is, President Biden, a man I respect, and I'm sure most of you do too, is perhaps the only Democrat who could lose to Donald Trump. 
In fact, he's likely to. He points out that a number of recent polls show Trump ahead nationally and in key swing states. Phillips is a centrist Democrat who supports Biden's agenda, but says he's failed to unite the country. As president, Phillips says he'd appoint both Democrats and Republicans to his cabinet. In fact, he tapped a never-Trump Republican who's left the GOP to direct his campaign. Steve Schmidt, who ran John McCain's presidential bid and then co-founded the anti-Trump Lincoln Project. Schmidt says after three years of Biden, Trump remains an existential threat to American democracy and establishment Democrats are in denial. Is the MAGA movement on its last breath? Is Donald Trump retired in Mar-a-Lago? Donald Trump is 40 points ahead in the Republican primary and in one poll, nine points ahead of Joe Biden. This is not a national security secret. The campaign hopes to appeal to moderates from both parties. Phillips calls them the exhausted majority. He supports abortion rights, but says he understands why many don't. He's a gun owner who supports gun regulations. He's a Hubert Humphrey Democrat who says his party spends too much and needs to secure the border. But in Manchester, his effort to meet people in the middle crashed when a 23-year-old voter named Aton Chan challenged him. She asked Phillips why he didn't back a ceasefire in Gaza. I have to tell you, I took note that you didn't mention, how do you feel about the Israeli babies? The grandmothers and grandpas that were killed and put up on Facebook. I am completely empathetic to them. But by you switching this conversation, I'm talking about the 10,000 dead people in Gaza. So what I'm And you're not answering my question, just like the conversation. The clash escalated. Chan became furious and was escorted out of the room, while another voter accused Phillips of gaslighting Chan. Phillips struggled to regain control of the meeting. Okay, everybody, look at one. All I ask is. Just kindness and respect to one another, all of us. I respect you. But Phillips also had support in the room. Steve Shirtliff, who co-chaired Biden's 2020 campaign in the state, says he's backing Phillips because Biden is too old and too unpopular. I'm concerned with the president's negatives. I think in a poll in New Hampshire, 67% of Democrats uh, said they wished he wouldn't run again. They wish he'd step aside and pass that torch to the next generation. But in New Hampshire, Biden still has plenty of supporters, and some are worried that Phillips' campaign will only weaken the president's chances against Trump. What Dean Phillips is doing is feeding the Republican narrative that Joe Biden can't win, there's no enthusiasm. Kathy Sullivan is a former chair of the New Hampshire Democratic Party. She notes that there's a long history of sitting presidents being hurt by primary challenges, from Lyndon Johnson to Jimmy Carter to George H.W. Bush. If, as he says, he wants a Democrat to win the White House, the best thing for Mr. Phillips to do is to pack his bags and go back to Minnesota. But New Hampshire offers Phillips a big opportunity to be noticed since Biden won't appear on the state's primary ballot. That's because the Democratic Party picked South Carolina with its large population of black voters to hold its primary first ahead of New Hampshire. So Sullivan is leading a write-in campaign for the president and says Phillips will only hurt that effort. Antoine Seawright, a political strategist in South Carolina, agrees. It was Joe Biden's decision to make South Carolina first. And so to buck that shows not only that disrespect to black voters, the most loyal and dedicated voting bloc in the generation, but also to the process. For his part, Phillips rejects that charge. Speaking to white voters in New Hampshire is not disrespectful to black voters in South Carolina. 
When I'm in South Carolina speaking to black voters, that's not disrespectful to Arab American voters in Michigan. Phillips says he wants to knit America back together even as he divides his own party. But he says he's only telling Democrats what they need to hear, that large numbers of Americans don't want either Trump or Biden as president. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have an international look at the results from yesterday's elections here in the U.S., plus the steps Taiwan is taking to pre- protect itself from China. It's 849. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AL Prime Energy Consultant, distributor of wholesale gasoline and diesel fuels for retail and commercial use. ALPrime.com. Five years ago, a deadly wildfire nearly wiped the town of Paradise, California off the map. Most of the town still hasn't been rebuilt. It's a ton of work, but considering it's only been five years and we had a pandemic in the middle of that, what we've accomplished is just a miracle. Why disaster recovery takes so long on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen again after four today on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. Five Republican candidates are set to take the stage in Miami tonight for the third presidential debate. Ivanka Trump will take the stand today in her family's civil fraud trial, and General Motors is recalling its entire fleet of driverless vehicles for a software update after one of the cars hit a pedestrian in San Francisco. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include UMass Chan Medical School, advancing medicine, nursing, and science together. More on their culture of collaboration at umassmed.edu together. Clear skies and windy today. Temperatures will rise to the mid-40s. It grows overcast tonight and falls to the mid-30s. There's a slight chance of rain and snow overnight with no accumulation expected. A good chance of more showers and sleet early Thursday morning. Then it'll be cloudy and back in the mid-40s. It's 38 degrees in Boston. An insider claims a big social media company ignores harmful effects. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Viking. Exploring the world in comfort, Viking offers a small ship experience with cultural enrichment and destination-focused dining. More at viking.com. And by Charles Schwab. Schwab believes every investor deserves to work with a firm they can count on, with financial consultants ready to serve clients and 24-7 live help. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. Here are the words of a former safety engineer at Meta, quote, we cannot trust them with our children. Arturo Behar told a Senate hearing yesterday that in his view, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram developed a culture he described as hear no evil, see no evil when it comes to content that could harm the mental health of young people. Marketplace's Nova Safo has more. Arturo Behar spent years at Meta working to reduce harmful content, but it was the experiences of his own teenage daughter once she joined Instagram that convinced him the company was falling short. She and her friends began having awful experiences, including repeated unwanted sexual advances, harassment. She reported these incidents to the company and it did nothing. 
Behar says Meta maintains a narrow definition of what it considers harmful material, which its automated systems are required to remove. Algorithms are as good as their inputs. So if you don't allow a child to be, oh, that is gross, it makes me uncomfortable, how do these systems like, even have a hope of addressing these issues? Meta points to more than 30 tools created to support teens and their families. But Behar dismissed many of the company's efforts as safety features in name only and said new regulations are needed to compel change at social media companies. I'm Nova Safo for Marketplace. Leaders start gathering in San Francisco for that Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum on Saturday through Friday of next week. President Joe Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping are expected to hold talks at that meeting as they seek to bring some stability to a tense relationship. The BBC's Mickey Bristow reports. In a speech in Singapore, China's Vice President Hang Zheng said the world was big enough for both countries to prosper and that Beijing was willing to hold talks at all levels. Although unconfirmed, the Chinese leader Xi Jinping is expected to meet President Biden in San Francisco next week. The U.S. has also indicated its willingness to improve relations by sending a number of top officials to Beijing this year. But major differences over trade, security and human rights and how each country sees the world remain obstacles to a genuine improvement in their relationship. The 21 member countries of the Asia Economic Cooperation Forum account for 40 percent of the global population and buy 60 percent of U.S. exports, according to the organization. With the CW, you know, the conventional wisdom thinking interest rates won't rise further. Stock markets have gone up for five days now. The S&P up 14 percent year so far. Nasdaq up 31 percent year to date. This morning, S&P and Nasdaq futures are little changed. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business helps simplify the supplies buying process. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. And by C3 AI. C3 Generative AI provides chat GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. C3.ai. This is Enterprise AI. It's hard to use the term bipartisanship with the divided Congress placing us less than 10 days now from a partial government shutdown. That said, there are chances at some point in this Congress for a new law to make it easier for people to save for retirement. Among those who might want to pay attention to this are part-timers and gig economy workers. For more, let's consult Marketplace's senior economics contributor Chris Farrell in St. Paul. Hey, Chris. Good morning, David. We covered these SECURE Act. There was one in 2019, a 2.0 in 2022, both made changes to the retirement savings system that you and I talked about that we covered on the program. What does Congress have on deck now? Okay, so it's called the Retirement Savings for Americans Act. And David, it's far more ambitious than the two SECURE Acts that you just mentioned. So what the legislation wants to do is boost the retirement security for low and moderate income workers who don't have access to an employer-sponsored retirement savings plan. So this is a large segment of the workforce and it has little to no retirement savings. And by the way, speaking of bipartisanship, the particulars of this legislation, they draw on recommendations developed in a white paper by liberal economists, Teresa Gellarducci of the New School and conservative economist, Kevin Hassett of the Hoover Institution. The core challenge this legislation, I think, aims to solve is expanding the number of workers covered by some kind of retirement plan. 
That's it. I mean, look, most workers save for the retirement through an employer-sponsored plan, and these plans typically come with a matching contribution from the employer. Problem is, it's up to the private sector employers to offer their employees a plan, and nearly half of workers don't have the option at work. And the same goes for the increasing number of workers that are in this so-called gig economy. So what's the idea here? It looks like it draws on, well, what the federal workers have and also members of the military. That's right. So the model is the federal government's thrift savings plan. So full and part-time workers would be immediately eligible for an account. And the same goes with gig workers, right? And these previously uncovered workers would be automatically enrolled at 3% of their income. Now, it's important to say they can choose to opt out. They get a match. It's an automatic 1% contribution from the federal government and up to another 4% through a refundable federal tax credit, which phases out at median income. The account is owned by the worker and participants would be given a menu as simple, low fee investment options. Now, there have been, I think, many attempts to create a federal retirement system plan they haven't really gone anywhere, Chris. What might be different this time? And I know, David, you are shocked, shocked that there is still vocal opposition to this kind of a federal law. But, you know, there does seem to be more private sector backing. Uh, Goldman Sachs, Society for Human Resource Management, Uber, DoorDash, they've all expressed support. Marketplace's senior economics contributor, Chris Farrell, thank you. Thanks a lot. And the Federal Trade Commission has written pharmaceutical companies calling into question 110 patents for drugs. The government suspects the patent info is either inaccurate or irrelevant. A faulty or bogus patent can hold up legitimate competition from cheaper generic versions. In New York, I'm David Brancaccio. It's the Marketplace Morning Report. Here from APM. American Public Media. Sunny skies today. We'll also have some gusty winds. It'll be in the mid-40s. Tonight it grows overcast. Temperatures will fall to the mid-30s. A little rain and maybe even snow overnight, but not enough to stick. A good chance of showers and sleet early Thursday morning. Then it'll be cloudy and in the mid-40s. It's 38 degrees in Boston, and the BBC News Hour is next. I'm Weekend Edition host Sharon Brody, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. You can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.